Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. This is the latest installment of the Franco... Dutch War. So thanks for joining us, and if you haven't heard the previous episodes, I would really encourage you to go and check them out so you have a better feel for what's going on during this period of history. So, what is When Diplomacy Fails? Well, When Diplomacy Fails, above all, is a listener-supported podcast. The best way to support When Diplomacy Fails is to be fit, which most of you probably know already, but which most of you may not know is that Zach has been doing an awful lot of adulting recently mainly because he's getting married in May. So if you guys feel like you'd be in a position to contribute anything other than moral support, I would really, really encourage you to check out the monthly subscription options where you can support When Diplomacy Fails for as little as €1 a month, or €2.50, or €5, or €10, or €20, if you're feeling insanely generous. There are some really generous history friends out there already, and I can't thank you guys enough for supporting this podcast with your hard-earned cash, because... It's because of people like you that I'm able to keep on doing this, and I don't have to answer to my future wife or my family or my friends too much. So, thanks very much again. And if everyone listening to this right now gave one euro a month, I wouldn't even need a real job, and I could just be a podcaster all the time, which would mean more content for you guys. So, whether or not that's possible, it would still be nice if coming up to the ultimate adulting test of marriage and everything that goes along with it, If you guys would mind giving a little bit of something towards me and my baby. If this sounds like something you'd be able to do, then please go to wdfpodcast.blogspot.ie or even www.wdfpodcast.com and click on one of the monthly subscription options to get going. Failing that, if you guys would like to buy a t-shirt or even pre-order my book, that would be great as well. All those options are available on the podcast website. That again, www.wdfpodcast.com. Sorry for the enforced charity, guys, but I gots to make a living, because if I don't make a living, I don't eat. Of course, that's not at all true, because I still sting off my parents, but there you go. Honesty. Speaking of honesty, let's see exactly how much honesty was lacking from the late 17th century, where a certain number of powers sought to fool and deceive one another to the point of ridiculousness. I'm talking, of course, about our continuing story in the Franco-Dutch War. So I hope you enjoy this latest episode. Thanks, and enjoy the show.
Hello and welcome to our third episode on the Franco-Dutch War, wherein we will tackle perhaps the juiciest diplomacy yet seen. Last time we saw how Louis XIV of France justified his invasion of the Spanish Netherlands, and here we'll see what Europe did in response. Particularly we'll see what Johann de Witt of the Netherlands did, and how he reacted to the moves of both Britain and France in 1667, with implications that would last for nearly a decade. I will now take you to about mid-1667. There cannot any one moral rule be proposed whereof a man may not justly demand a reason. Every man has a property in his own person. This nobody has any right to but himself. The people cannot delegate to government the power to do anything, which would be unlawful for them to do themselves. John Locke. To generations of historians, the Triple Alliance signed between Britain, the Dutch and Sweden on the 23rd of January 1668 simply did not make sense. On the strategic level of course, European states banding together to halt French aggression made perfect sense, but on a personal level it was really hard to pinpoint where and when exactly Johann de Witt, the guiding force behind Dutch foreign policy, had decided to throw his lot in against France and with his enemy, Britain, of the last two decades. It seemed a breathtaking turnaround in foreign policy, but to so many European historians of the era, the shake-up simply didn't gel with DeWitt's character. He had fought tooth and nail to first gain, then maintain, and then defend the alliance with France, which had been signed in 1662. Why would he then make such an about-face, even if Louis XIV of France was making troubling advances on his doorstep. I suppose the question really boils down to, did historians believe that Johann de Witt, cynical statesman that he was, valued the integrity of the Spanish Netherlands more than an alliance or a friendship with France? Indeed, even that question is laden with a whole number of other questions. If you've been with us since the beginning of this narrative, you would have seen how de Witt made strategic diplomatic moves in the early 1660s to try and temper what he believed were catastrophic French plans to take over the Spanish Netherlands. De Witt was no dummy, I think we're all aware of that. He knew that an all-powerful France on the Dutch doorstep was a bad thing, and he had regularly presented his country as more willing to treat with Britain in the early 1660s, before the Second Anglo-Dutch War broke out, that is, as a counterweight to French ambitions. Yet even if we consider this, it is still shocking to see De Witt publicly place his country in the camp opposite to France, particularly when Louis had endeavoured as a kind of long-term strategy to keep the Orangists out of power in the Netherlands, to prop up De Witt's merchant regime, and protect the Dutch from either the British or marauding German princes. 
It was not the case that De Witt was constantly battling to keep the French as friends all by himself. Louis also wanted and saw the value in keeping the Dutch as alliance partners, and he had actually sacrificed much to ensure the state of affairs. Louis believed that the best way to prevent the two maritime powers, as Britain and the Netherlands were known, from teaming up against France was to keep De Witt in power and the Orangists out of power. The Orangists, because recapping is fun, were the other party in the Dutch Republic, mostly out of favour at this time, and they advocated a return to power of the House of Orange, which had once led their state to independence against Spain. Support for the Orangist party by the mid-1660s basically meant support for William III, a young man of joint British and Dutch parentage, who would not come of age until November 1668. When that time came, pressure would be intensive from the Orangists to put him back in a position of power. An Orangist Netherlands would surely team up with the British Stuarts, as family ties and traditions suggested, not to mention the fact that the Orangists were traditionally less pacific and more concerned with militaristic policies. Louis thus had common ground with De Witt because De Witt of course wished to remain in power and hold back the anti-French tides of opinion that occasionally overwhelmed Dutch opinion and varied throughout the seven Dutch provinces. Fear of a regime change in the Netherlands had been part of the reason Louis XIV had intervened on the side of the Dutch in the recent Anglo-Dutch war and though the Dutch bemoaned the fact that France could have done far more Louis considered his honour intact in coming to the aid of his ally and believed that he had upheld his terms of the 1662 Franco-Dutch Defensive Alliance rather well. Louis thus anticipated that De Witt would follow suit in his war against the Spanish, which was commenced in 1667, and which, as we saw last time, Louis pointed to questionable marital motivations as his justification. Johann de Witt was certainly spooked and dismayed that the French had finally acted where it was feared that they would, but in May 1667 the Netherlands was still at war with Britain, and it was not until late July of that year, after some impressive displays, that they forced Britain to sign the Treaty of Breda. No doubt the treaty was hurried forward on some part because of Louis' actions, but if historians or students of international relations expected De Witt to immediately declare against Louis, diplomatically or otherwise, they would have been disappointed. De Witt, after all, had not gotten this far by acting rashly. We saw the French pour into the Spanish Netherlands at the end of the last episode, but we also learned a very important fact, that Louis was not out to simply annex the whole region, at least not yet. Louis was after a few fortress towns that lay on the border and just within Flanders, Brabant and Hainaut. He did not want to invest and seize every fortress that the Spanish possessed in the Netherlands. That would take way too long. You see, quick successes and some much-needed glory were what he was after, and this explains why, when a concerned Johann de Witt asked Louis, via much ambassadorial acrobatics, what his war aims actually were, Louis was able to fire back to his dear ally that he only required about 10 distinct fortresses. I'm not going to name them all here, but what Louis wanted revolved around the defensive belt of the South Netherlands, essentially those forts which touched the French border. Of course, if France occupied these, then the Spanish Netherlands would be much reduced in its defensive capabilities. And this also helps us understand why there was an element of distrust where expecting Louis to stick to his claims 
was concerned. It is worth noting that the traditional story given to us by historians of the period tells us that De Witt was concerned about French moves, so he made the Triple Alliance, which Louis didn't like, so Louis made war on the Dutch in 1672 as revenge. This story, recounted in some form in virtually all of the versions of history I have come across, is in fact only partially true. Louis would take the Triple Alliance personally, but not for the reasons you might expect. Furthermore, if you remember what I said at the end of the last episode, that the betrayal came not from De Witt, but from Charles II, then you'll probably have realised you're in for quite a story, and one which is far more interesting than the mainstream version, because we're all hipsters here after all. So helping us in our quest to get to the bottom of things is an article, Johann De Witt and the Triple Alliance, by Herbert H. Rowan, written in 1954. Now I know what you're thinking, and yes, that was quite some time ago, but I think this really reflects how badly this era of history is in need of a reappraisal. So that's why we're here, I suppose. Now that's not at all to suggest that Rowan's analysis isn't great, but it would be nice if there were more authors like him today, talking and debating over the finer points of this period. As it stands, Rowan is one of the very few I've found who gets to the bottom of things, but his analysis of the Triple Alliance and DeWitt's actions also make a lot more sense than the other versions of history. I, for one, was never able to understand why, as I made clear at the beginning of this episode, DeWitt seemed so willing to turn on Louis when he had so depended on the French alliance in the past. Some historians went with the version of history which claimed that Johann DeWitt recognised that France was a bigger threat than Britain, and thus in the interests of the balance of power he was forced to act. But this explanation was never very convincing to me, and I felt that there was a better explanation lurking beneath the surface. As it happened, thankfully, there was. Hopefully you'll agree that this version is more convincing considering what we know about DeWitt's character, but to just jump into it would make little sense, so we'll have to give a bit of background first. So, as early as 1662, the French and Dutch had talked about partitioning the Spanish Netherlands. The plan read like a simple division of the ten provinces in the Spanish Netherlands, north and south, between the Dutch and France, respectively, but the critical problem that this would expose Dutch territory to France always held Dutch negotiators back from agreeing. If they had, history may well have been very different, and as concerned for glory as Louis XIV was, it is debatable whether he would have attacked the Dutch at all had he not felt so slighted in 1668. We'll examine why he felt so slighted soon. But standing with France, as De Witt had done since 1662, meant being on the opposite side to Spain by default, which despite Madrid's declining power base and vulnerability, was not an unimportant fact. The concerns and proclivities of certain Dutch statesmen were roused by the Franco-Dutch closeness, as we have seen, since some of them believed that the Dutch should defend the Spanish and prevent a French takeover, while others insisted that a neutral path could be treaded, with the French alliance still maintained and the British enemy being carefully watched. Johann de Witt fell into this latter category, and thus he remained remarkably calm in contrast to the traditional historical portrayal of him, when his ally, France, invaded Flanders in May 1667. Appreciating that Louis had been working up to this event, 
and understanding that the Dutch were his major ally in the region, if not in Europe itself, De Witt could feel confident that Louis would not seek to endanger their joint interests. Yet he did want some assurance of at least what Louis planned to do, but more importantly, where he planned to stop. Thus, we come to the aforementioned message De Witt had pinged to Louis, wherein he asked of his intentions. The next aspect of this story is covered by Rowan, when he writes, The French king informed the Dutch of his terms for peace, but insisted at the same time that they would promise to take up arms against Spain should the Madrid court reject these terms. He assured the Dutch he would be grateful for their intercession on his behalf. To summon the Dutch States General, it was inconceivable that the Dutch would pressure Spain to act towards whatever course, since they were obviously the weaker power. De Witt argued in response that Louis had assured them of where he would stop, and that to refuse such a gesture, which really only represented the fulfilment of the terms of the Defensive Alliance of 1662, would greatly offend the French king. The problem, as De Witt well knew, was not so much a foreign, but a domestic one. Once again, the terminally divided Dutch National Parliament was tying itself in knots over which path to choose. It should be added that throughout the last 15 or so years that De Witt had been in power, his position was largely a ceremonial one. His status as Grand Pensionary of the States of Holland gave him a level of influence and respectability in his home province, but when it came to national rather than provincial matters, De Witt normally relied on the peer pressure which he could bring to bear on his colleagues. His official title when he stood in the States General was First Minister, and his reputation and skills amongst his Dutch peers of every province was legendary, but such a post held no actual power, as Rowan explains when he wrote, De Witt served not only as a Executive Secretary of the Government of the Principal Province, Holland, but also as First Minister for the States General. Though he possessed no formal authority, he had won political leadership over the States Party by his knowledge, assiduity and skill. Two points are worth making on what we've just learned. The first is that the Dutch governmental style was, by its very nature, quite complicated. The fact that it was so, and that it was one of the few republics in Europe at this point, were lessons held in both respect and scorn by the largely monarchical forms of government which surrounded the Dutch. Now, I don't expect you guys to be able to imagine what De Witt's post was like, or to be able to relate it to a modern-day equivalent, since it was quite a weird one. By its nature, it was somewhat vague, and often gave De Witt the appearance of having more power than he actually did, when in reality what he was doing was riding tides of influence and favour, or trusting on his network of friends to help him get his policies across. Johan de Witt was thus more at the mercy of tides of opinion in the Netherlands than we might have realised, and this will become fatally clear in the years to come. This leads me to my second point. Because of the vagueness of his position, and of the confusion surrounding it, I have often regarded de Witt as basically the Prime Minister of the Netherlands for the sake of convenience, and I have often presented him to you as such. Yet this blip we're about to see affirms that he was far from such an office. I feel like such a clarification is necessary in case you wonder later on why De Witt doesn't or didn't just order his cabinet or ministerial allies to act in his name and quell opposition, as any other prime minister or traditional foreign minister would do in another state. The reason why De Witt never really did this, at least not in the straightforward way we'd be used to, 
is because he legally couldn't. He was merely the representative of the states general, and thus he could only channel their desires. He couldn't control them. So with that out of the way, you'll hopefully be able to understand why the precariously positioned DeWitt was forced to bow to the demands of his peers as 1667 wore on. Before he bowed, though, DeWitt had had to try very hard to persuade the States General to coerce Spain if the Spanish would not agree to cede the fortress towns that Louis desired. These were the same fortresses which Louis had claimed. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. He would halt his forces at if the Dutch would join him in pressuring Madrid to make peace. If the Dutch did not join in the pressurising, Louis claimed that the Spanish would not relent, but DeWitt perceived that Louis actually meant that the French advance would continue. DeWitt thus implored his colleagues to accept the provision which Franco-Dutch negotiators had developed, and only when Spain declined to surrender and agree to these peace terms was DeWitt able to petition the States General to agree to permit a level of Dutch coercion for the sake of the European peace. In DeWitt's mind, by granting Louis the spoils he wanted, it would satisfy his lust for conquest, while at the same time, it also enabled the Dutch to control, at least in some sense, what did or didn't fall into Louis's hands. This train of thought was formalised in an agreement signed by the French and Dutch on the 10th of December 1667. If Spain refused to bow to peace proposals put forward by France whenever they next materialised, then the Dutch would agree to pressure Spain as an ally of France to agree, and by force if necessary. While these efforts were ongoing, De Witt was faced with an additional problem that slowly eroded the work he had been doing to please France while also minimalising Dutch involvement. Standing on the Dutch doorstep in early January 1668 was a British diplomat De Witt just couldn't seem to get rid of, William Temple and he was looking for an alliance. This was not the first time Temple had visited The Hague. In both October and December of 1667, he had moved from his base in Brussels as British ambassador to the Spanish Netherlands. 
to undertake a new mission outlined by Charles II. Charles was trying to sound out the Dutch for an agreement, ostensibly to limit French expansion in the Spanish Netherlands, but in 1667, Temple was mostly unwilling to commit to anything concrete, or at least he hadn't been given the powers to agree to anything concrete, and De Witt was non-committal as well. The complicated Anglo-Dutch relationship had continued to grow even more so after the conclusion of the Treaty of Breda at the end of July 1667. At that event, negotiators from all of the Dutch provinces were present, as was customary. During the proceedings, though, the party from Zeeland, perhaps the second most important province in the Netherlands, announced its intention to send a delegation to London in a bid to get Britain on side against France in view of the recent situation in the Spanish Netherlands where Louis had invaded. De Witt, as Grand Pensionary of the States of Holland, could not stop them, but he did advise against it, saying that Louis would probably take offence and that he was already advancing his own personal mission in direct contact with the French king. The Zealand mission ignored him and went ahead in any case, and this was reciprocated by the aforementioned missions by William Temple in 1667, where the British diplomat was instructed to ascertain whether the circumstances existed to put into motion any of the agreements that the Zealand party, visiting in London, had suggested. This whole event reflects the fact that, on occasion, the seven provinces of the Netherlands behaved differently. It also makes defining Dutch policy all the more joyfully complicated. For the most part, the Zealand states were anti-French, markedly more Orangist in their sympathies, and saw British aid as the best way to bring the Orange family back. They would never have presented their trip to London as a chance to solicit British aid for an Orangist restoration, but De Witt would certainly have suspected that the Zealand agents in question were reconnecting with their old contacts in the city, and that any resolutions they might suggest probably wouldn't be favourable towards his regime. This is part of the reason why this whole period seems so confusing, and why Dutch policy can seem so contradictory, and it often doesn't even feel like the Dutch possess a real, unified foreign policy. While the Zealand party spent most of summer and early autumn in London, De Witt remained wholly resistant to any suggestion that the Netherlands would ally with Britain against France, as William Temple in his frequent visits was rumoured to be seeking. In actual fact, as we know, Temple had not been given authorization to seek an alliance, and was ostensibly visiting The Hague to see what measures the Dutch would use to bring about peace between France and Spain. In other words, Temple was officially on a fact-finding mission, since it was easier to do so when his job description kept him virtually next door in Brussels. De Witt had to deal with the problems that Temple's prodding and poking threw up, but he mostly remained unmoved and in control of policy at the States General, so that it could be said, rumours notwithstanding, that the official policy of the Netherlands by the end of 1667 was one of cooperation with Louis and coercion of Spain if the latter would not agree to make peace, as laid down in the agreement reached on the 10th of December. De Witt may have thought that was that, and that hopefully the Franco-Spanish War would wind down in the new year, but behind the scenes an underrated actor was considering his next move. While De Witt had been trying to consolidate his hold and maintain control over Dutch policy, Charles II had been sending his agents into France and the court of Louis XIV 
trying to organize a league against the Dutch. Charles seemed to have cared very little for the plight of the Spanish Netherlands or for Europe's balance of power. Hence, I kept on mentioning that he seemed ostensibly interested in the Spanish Netherlands in the past, because Charles was moved more by motives of revenge against the power which had recently humiliated him, and so discredited his reign. It was only when Charles's agents were rebuffed, on Louis' insistence that the Franco-Dutch defensive alliance prevented any such agreements against the Dutch existing, that Charles made the conscious decision to invest his diplomatic resources elsewhere, with dramatic consequences. Thus, William Temple's arrival at The Hague in autumn 1667 was Charles's option B. Having been rebuffed by Louis, Charles was determined to get something out of the changing international situation, and he instructed his agents abroad to focus their efforts towards a new goal, incorporating the Dutch into an alliance. Rowan gives us a window into Charles's logic, and why he seemed so willing all of a sudden to treat with the power that had humiliated him less than a year before. If Louis turned him down, he, Charles, could make allies of the Dutch. This would mollify Parliament and public opinion for the time being, and demonstrate to Louis that Charles was able to find support elsewhere. In addition, he would be able to cause French resentment and wrath against De Witt, who stood in the way of the advancement of Charles's nephew, Prince William. We've seen in the past how Charles's diplomacy has been left somewhat underrated by historians. Before war with the Dutch broke out for the second time in 1665, Charles had been on to the Danes and Swedes to see if they wanted to attack the Dutch with him, a fact history has virtually forgotten. Here we see him trying to play the diplomatic game again, but for different reasons. Charles's end goal was undoubtedly revenge against the Dutch, but being forced into option B meant that he would have to go about it in a less straightforward way. Louis was unwilling to abandon his alliance with the Dutch, so Charles, by December 1667, had elected to break this alliance up through his own cunning and guile. What he achieved was in many ways impressive. In a sense, what follows was almost exclusively the result of Charles's trickery and wiles, fooling De Witt into agreeing and then committing to something he had little real passion in, as well as manipulating the domestic situation of the Netherlands. Indeed, the first obstacle Charles would have to overcome, if he wanted to incorporate the Dutch into an alliance, impress Louis and drive a wedge between both powers in the process, was Johann de Witt. As ever, de Witt was mightily suspicious of any English moves to change the diplomatic status quo. An important fact to remember was that de Witt had just signed an agreement to act in tandem with France in December, diplomatically at first, but militarily if necessary, to pressure Spain into accepting what Louis had defined as his price for peace. Already, you should note that this is a completely different picture to the one often presented by mainstream history, where De Witt basically freaks out once the War of Devolution begins in May 1667 and spends the rest of that year building up the Triple Alliance, even being desperate enough to recruit his former enemy in London to use against the expansionist French. Seeing the bigger picture, the story goes, De Witt sacrifices his French alliance in the hope that by stopping Louis with diplomatic pressure, a message will be sent to Europe that its states need to cooperate against the French in future and that containing the French king is in fact possible. This version of history is so not true. 
To begin with, Louis and DeWitt were on pretty good terms by December 1667, and DeWitt had been informed by his agents that French armies had not advanced beyond the point stipulated by Louis. 1668, DeWitt anticipated, would see the French sue for peace and ask to hold on to what they had taken, and the Spanish would agree or else, as per the Franco-Dutch agreements, pressure or force would be brought to bear. DeWitt, of course, was not blind to Louis' ambitions, and he didn't pretend that the vaunted reasoning behind why Louis invaded in the first place had any founding in truth. Since the early 1660s, after all, Johann DeWitt had been very wary of Louis' ambitions, and noted regularly to his colleagues that one day, France would wage a European war. France had, DeWitt told his colleagues in 1664, A 26-year-old king, vigorous of body and spirit, who knows his mind and who acts on his own authority, who possesses a kingdom populated by an extremely bellicose people and with very considerable wealth. Any neighbour armed with such qualities was worth fearing, or better yet, worth making friends with. Thus DeWitt had no intention of abandoning France in favour of an alliance against her, he would instead tolerate what were clearly the expressions of an ambitious king obsessed with his quest for glory, in return for an alliance that was the envy of the rest of Europe. The problem DeWitt was faced with in January 1668, though, was that such a hold on foreign policy was no longer his monopoly. In the decision of whether to ally with his former enemy Britain or not, as posed by William Temple, the choice had been taken out of his hands. This comes back to what we mentioned earlier, with the Dutch governmental system, and DeWitt's position being one of power only in the Parliament of Holland. In the National Parliament, the States General, he was subject to the whims of various parties or factions that had gained a majority in popularity, and popular by January 1668, thanks mostly to Louis' scary advances in the Spanish Netherlands, was an anti-French policy. So even though De Witt had remained calm as Louis invaded the Spanish Netherlands, many of his colleagues in the States General had not. Not only were they immensely spooked by Louis' advances, they were spurred on by the promises given by this reputable English agent, William Temple, for a way to stick it to France. News of the alliance offer by William Temple caused a sensation in the Dutch States General, as the anti-French party there saw it as a much-needed gift which would dramatically turn the power of France back and see the maritime powers allied together at last. Rowan explains the scene. It has often been forgotten by non-Dutch writers that the Grand Pensionary, however great his influence, did not hold any portion of sovereign authority and had no right of independent action. When, as in the case of the Triple Alliance, the members of the States of Holland or the States General did not see events with his eyes, it was he who was compelled to follow them. Thus, the Dutch States General effectively overruled De Witt and pressed for the alliance with Britain as well as the Swedes upon the suggestion of Temple to be signed at the first opportunity. Yet, De Witt was by no means out. He was determined that his efforts in foreign policy not be sacrificed for the latest trend in Parliament. The Triple Alliance, though presented by Temple to the States General as an anti-French policy designed to curb French expansion, was reimagined by De Witt as a coalition of states tasked with bringing about the end of the War of Devolution. The key difference was the way De Witt presented its objectives. 
just as De Witt had committed to coerce the Spanish if they did not agree to Louis's limited demands, De Witt insisted that the Triple Alliance was created for that same purpose, that it was a peacekeeping mission, and that the coercing of Spain remained its major objective. On the other hand, De Witt, of course, was not at all happy with being pushed into this agreement. He had never wanted to sign any kind of alliance with Britain because he straight up didn't trust Charles, and he knew that Charles was burning with revenge after all that had happened in the months before. He never trusted William Temple, convinced as he was that the Brit was there to deceive them and trick them into making an alliance that they didn't want, and that Charles would turn it on them as soon as he could. Furthermore, to top it all off, he believed wholeheartedly that in the grand scheme of things, France was a stronger and more sensible ally for a state like the Dutch to have in Europe. De Witt was under immense pressure at this time, and during one outburst he exclaimed his disbelief that the members of the States General would think it like to prove too sudden a change of all their interests, and that which would absolutely break them off from so old and constant a friend as France to rely wholly upon so new and uncertain a friend as England had proved. Forced into this new course of action, though, De Witt sought to make lemonade out of lemons. The Triple Alliance would be signed, with Sweden added in to insulate De Witt from any attempts at betrayal made by Charles. At least, if it was a grand coalition, the idea went, London couldn't simply absolve itself. If it did do that, it would incur the displeasure of Sweden as well as the Dutch. Thus, the strange series of circumstances that brought the British, Dutch and random Swedes together were settled on paper on the 24th of January 1668. Still, De Witt convinced himself and many of his colleagues that it was not an anti-French league, and that there was no reason why the French and Dutch could not remain firm allies. Except, as De Witt well knew, there was one reason why. To De Witt, this would not have seemed like too big a deal, but he still recognised its potential well enough that he asked for Temple to keep it in the secret parts of the treaty that the three powers had signed. In the past, much noise had been made about the agreements between France and the Dutch, and the provisions within them to coerce Spain if Madrid proved too stubborn to make peace based on Louis' agreed offers. You remember them. The Triple Alliance, as De Witt had tried to emphasise, would follow this policy as well, so as to ensure that Europe could be brought to a state of peace once more. By presenting it like this, Louis and De Witt apparently were still friends, even though the Triple Alliance was signed. Well, the problem with this was, within the secret articles of the treaty, De Witt eventually agreed to a provision which stipulated that, if Louis tried to break out of the limits of his agreed conquests, the Triple Alliance would coerce him to make peace too. The French ambassador to The Hague had not even expected the Triple Alliance to come into being, owing to De Witt's renowned dislike for everything British, but that French agent underestimated the opposition that had grown against De Witt, and the best De Witt could therefore do was reassure this Frenchman that the Franco-Dutch relationship need not change. De Witt did not, of course, mention to this ambassador that if Louis decided to expand upon his original wish list for the Spanish Netherlands and take maybe 12 fortresses instead of 10, then the Dutch would use their newfound allies to pressure Louis to back down. As far as De Witt was concerned, it wasn't necessary to mention this, because Louis had already agreed to take only a certain number of towns, 
There was no need for him to ever find out about the secret provision. If Louis stuck to his guns and remained consistent with what he had told DeWitt he wanted in the previous month. There was, in other words, no reason for the secret to leak out at all. No reason that is, except for a vengeful and scheming British king, back in London, who had eyed the developing diplomatic situation which he had set in motion with a level of satisfied glee. Having noted that De Witt had somehow managed to present the Triple Alliance to Louis in a good light, Charles was determined to upset this careful apple cart that De Witt had created. He would expose De Witt's secret French coercion clause, the clause that De Witt didn't want and the clause that he didn't even regard as particularly incendiary, because Charles recognised it for what it was, something which the King of France would take extremely personally even if DeWitt didn't quite understand why. By so doing, Charles was in fact setting in motion a chain of events which would not end for an entire decade. But more than that, he was dooming his brand new ally to face the wrath of the Sun King and face it on a level never seen in Europe before. on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars, luxurious italian leather bags and so much more plus quince only works with factories that use safe ethical and responsible manufacturing get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with quince go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365 day returns Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 